So, we are now entering the last, officially the last four chapters in our study of the book of Revelation. And I trust that by this time, we have a better grasp of what Revelation is about. Uh, we have corrected the confusion about what's going to happen in the last, uh, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we have established what really Revelation is all about. Now, having said that, for the past few months and years, we have had major developments in our world that make reading the book of Revelation interesting and relevant. Um, if we lay out all the major developments, we have the 2019 pandemic, which uh, put fear in the hearts of every individual around the world, not just here in the United States, but it also took away lives of millions of people. We also have the death of George Floyd that catapulted the status of the BLM into a rock star status. And so suddenly we found, found ourselves to be confused as to who really plays the hero. Is it the black, the blue, the white, or the brown? Which lives really matter? The black, the blue, the white, or the brown? The last 10 years, we have an unprecedented phenomenon of gender dysphoria among the Gen Zs. By the way, we have reached the 8 billion mark of the population of the world this month, 8 billion. According to studies, Gen Z is about 32% of 8 billion. In the USA today, we have about 330 million plus Americans and 20% belong to Gen Z. Now, to put it in perspective, 20% is about 66 million strong. Out of 66 billion, one out of five identify with having gender dysphoria. That means for the next 20 to 30 years, think about this, for the next 20 to 30 years, there will be an entire generation of people belonging to Gen Z who will never be able to contribute to the population of the world. Now, I'm, I'm talking about this because in the western part of the world, especially here, there's a radicalization of policies and worldviews in the last decade. And suddenly, it's a crime to be speaking politically incorrect. Speaking the truth can be labeled as hate speech. So the question is, what's going on here? What's happening in our world today? What's making all these changes? Or better yet, who is leading the world to these changes? Now, it's been a while since we had the last major empire until World War I. No, no one is alive in World War I, right? We have all been born after World War maybe two. <laughs> but the last major empire lasted until World War I. According to scholars, the British Empire was known to have provided the Pax Britannica. Now, we have been talking about the Pax Romana all along. The Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, is the Gospel of Rome. It's the peace and prosperity and stability that Rome provided for the last 1,500 years that the Empire of Rome lasted for that long. The Pax Britannica, or the Pax, so the Gospel of uh, Britain, or the Peace of Britain, lasted for about 400 years. But scholars are are not in agreement as to when it lasted. Some said it's, it ended in the First World War I. Some said in Second World War. But in 1997, 
the United Kingdom handed over Hong Kong back to China. And then the scholars came in agreement as to why this marks the fall of the British Empire. If we're, if we're talking about the book of Revelation, if we are talking about Rome or Babylon or the empire or one world government or the new world order or a hegemony, do we have an empire today? The obvious answer is no, we don't have an empire today. But could it be possible that behind the curtain, behind closed doors, the world is coming together to build a one-world government, a new world order, a new Babylon or a new empire? I'm not sure if you're following the news or if you're uh, interested in geopolitics, but there is something brewing and happening as of today. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, it was very clear from the get-go that this prayer is about the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It's about God establishing his kingdom on earth, just like in heaven. So why is this language so important? Because although this world is the world that God made from the beginning, but from the very start, from Adam all the way to the first city that Cain built, all the way to the Tower of Babel, God is always usurped, rejected, and denied of his throne. God is sidelined, to say the least. Think about this. From Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, it's all about God being rejected by the world. It's all about the world establishing a new world empire, a new world order, rejecting God away from the picture. And suddenly in Genesis chapter 12, you're reading your Bible, suddenly Abraham came. And then from Abraham, the nation of Israel. Why is the nation of Israel suddenly became the nation of God? Think about this. God choosing the nation of Israel is a foretaste of the new kingdom. God choosing the nation of Israel is the foretaste of how God will rule the earth again. This is him coming back to earth and establishing his rule. That means Israel will become a prototype, a model of this one world government that God rules. But not right now, because Israel now is not governing the world. In the time of Solomon, they were supposed to. But now, it's not. Now, what's interesting is that the main role of Israel, when they were called, they were called to be a royal priest of the holy nation. They were supposed to reflect the image of God. They were supposed to reflect and dominate the world by righteousness, which they failed to do so again and again. Here's one interesting thing. Every time a Jewish prayer starts, it would always start with, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Baruch Ata Adonai, praise our God, Melek Haolam, Melek is king, Haolam is world. Every Jewish prayer starts with like that, an acknowledgement that there's only one king of the world, and that's God. I'm, I'm not sure if we believe that, but that's what the Bible says, and that's what we have to believe. There's only one king of the universe, and that is God. And that means every time we talk about kingdoms and empire and Babylon and Rome, we are talking about nothing more but man's attempt 
to rule the world without God, to deny God as king of the whole creation or the whole world. We're not talking about the, the personal reign of God in our hearts. We're talking about the macro perspective on who rules the world at this point. Now, I'm going to say something very sensitive, and I'm not sure if you're following, again, the geopolitics, but you might have heard about this in the news. The World Economic Forum of 2022 is an attempt to reset the world's agenda for the next decade. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm not talking about secrets because this is all in their website. The World Economic Forum is a private-public partnership that includes in their agenda people, prosperity, planet, partnership, and peace. Now call me suspicious, but I don't see the rule of God in the new Babylon. Again, the World Economic Forum is a public and private partnership of politicians, business people, big corporations, and academics who sit to discuss how to reset the world and program how we live for the next 100 years. This is not a secret. It's in the news. This sounds more like another Tower of Babel to me, a government that is ruled by men and not God. As I mentioned before, I try my best to veer away from conspiracy theories, but looking at what's happening around the world, I smell something fishy here. If I put things together, the timing of the pandemic, the BLM, the phenomenon of gender dysphoria, the critical race theory, the massive disinformation happening around the world today, I see these and China as a prototype of how the next world empire will look like in the next 100 years. China has a very big ambition to rule the world. Now, Book of Revelation. We heard about the seals, we heard about the trumpets, we heard about the bowls. We know that the Book of Revelation talks about the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world. But in Revelation chapter 19, it gives us an, a near climactic scene of, rev, of celebration. Instead of an apocalyptic Catastrophe, it gives us a sort of celebration. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah. It's a good thing we're singing Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with their immorality and has avenged on her blood of his servants. Now, notice the language of John mentioning salvation, glory, and power. Why would he mention salvation, glory, and power? Because the claim of Rome during his time was about salvation, glory, and power. Now, the Romans claim to provide Pax Romana. This is the gospel of Rome. They can provide prosperity, stability, and peace all throughout the Roman Empire. This is about salvation. People th think of salvation not in spiritual terms during the first century, but in terms of physical sense. Salvation from war, salvation from death, salvation from all the catastrophe in the world. And Rome provides this salvation. What about glory? Think about all the achievements of Rome. All the achievements that come with the progress of civilization, talk about aqueducts, the Roman calendar, the road system, talk about 
Talk about the republic. Why the U.S. is like this today. We have uh, the Congress and the Senate and how our nation was founded by our, the, the fathers. The idea of republic being led by the people, for the people, of the people. The Romans are so engrossed with glory. And this glory is encapsulated in their achievements that they have shared with the world. What about power? See, salvation and glory, but without power, there's, there's really no continuity on this one. And so they think of power in terms of how to control the empire. How does the Roman emperors control the empire? The Roman emperors legitimize their power over governments and people through gods or the divine will of the gods. So in Rome, a war, business venture, or any major decision that will be made will need first to consult augury or divination. Augury is the movement of the birds, and they will think if the birds or the movement of the birds will be auspicious. So they will do, they will make a decision. Or they also use haruspex. Haruspex is when they open an animal, look at the internal organs, and see the movement of the liver and the intestines and all the placement, and they will say, it's suspicious. It's good luck. It's same thing with what the Chinese are doing. When, when they look at the movement of the stars, astrology, it's good luck. It's what maybe some Filipinos love to look at newspapers. They see their good luck there and there. Uh, November 20, if you are Leo, you will be so-and-so, something like that. Well, in Rome, the will of the gods are enforced on the people, and the Roman emperors enforce their will on the people. But what if the will of the Roman emperor is in contrast to the will of the gods? So an easy thing to do is the Roman emperor will elevate himself to the position of a god. That's why we have the term divus fili or divi fili. Divi fili means son of God. This is not an original of Christianity, by the way. Even before in the Old Testament, the son of God was used as a term for a king. Solomon was called son of God. David was called son of God. Divi fili, the Roman emperor, is called son of God. He elevated himself to that position so that he can enforce his will on the people. That's easy. Again, when we say that Caesars are called son of God, this is not original of Christianity. So for John to say salvation, glory, and power belongs to our God is an act of defiance against Rome and against Caesar. This is, in the first century, plain and simple treason. Now, treason is what expected from the followers of Jesus in the first century. We always hear the word discipleship. Discipleship is not about Bible study. Discipleship is not just about gathering together once a week to eat, to pray, to study the Bible. That may be our definition of discipleship, but that's not discipleship. Let me tell you what real discipleship is. Real discipleship in the first century context is about the commitment to follow Jesus by accepting the likely possibility of persecution and or certain death. That is discipleship. That is what it means to follow Jesus and give our allegiance to him in the first century. Christianity today is smuggled by simply understanding that I believe in Jesus, 
period. I go to church once a week, period. I pray occasionally, period. But not with the full commitment to follow Jesus with that likely possibility of persecution and certain death. You see, when Jesus invites us to follow him, it's not just believe in me and then go on your merry way. When Jesus invites us to follow him, it means an invitation to suffer and die. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. That's the call to follow Jesus. It's not just to believe in him, period. This concept of discipleship, though, is foreign to us in the 21st century context, especially here in the Western world. Because the Western brand of discipleship is seriously connected to consumerism. I'd like you to think about this very seriously. The Western brand of discipleship is a personal kind of faith. It's about being personal. It's about being an individual. It's about personal salvation with a personal savior, much like having a personal driver, a personal hairstylist, a personal hygienist. If that is the case, if Christianity started like this, discipleship becomes nothing but an exercise of my spiritual life. Growing and maturing is about how I read my Bible, how I pray, how I worship God on a personal basis. You see, real discipleship cannot happen in a vacuum. Growing in Christ cannot happen in a vacuum. Exercising your spiritual gifts cannot happen in a vacuum. Producing the fruits of the Spirit must take place in the context of a community. We call it the church. You cannot mature if you're alone. How do you exercise patience? How do you exercise love? How do you exercise self-control? See, discipleship can only happen, growth and maturity can only happen in the context of the church. One cannot grow alone. Are you still with me? One cannot be a true disciple alone. Therefore, a believer cannot truly claim to be growing in Christ if he or she does not go or belong to a church. And I am a very firm believer on this one. He or she may be learning things from online sermons, but that is just one aspect of growth. That is why online Christianity won't work. This is the reason why more people are attracted to mega churches. <clears throat> the bigger, the better. The more lights, the better. The more sounds, the better. This is the reason why we have a culture of church shopping. Have you heard about this? Church shopping, church hopping. Now we have this. It is the decision to go to a church that best fits your need. So some people, they want to follow Jesus, but they want to go online first and check for all the churches in their area and look for the church that fits their needs. It is called church shopping. The idea is that you stay there for as long as it fits your needs. But if you don't feel fed, inspired, and cared for anymore, it's time to pack up and find another church. And so if this is the case, discipleship becomes an eight-week course on how to be a good Christian. Or a four-week course, how to be financially free. Some churches offer this. Or it can also be a discussion on a whole book designed to determine what your best life now is. That, ladies and gentlemen, may be a bestseller, but that is not discipleship. Ascribing salvation, glory, and power to God alone, who rules and gives our constant allegiance, is discipleship. It's all about giving God our commitment to follow Him. That is discipleship. 
So we asked in the beginning of the sermon about the possibility of a growing empire behind closed doors. Question is, could it be possible that there's a growing empire, one world government system that will control how we spend our money, how we define humanity, how we prevent wars in the next 10 to 20 years? Could it be possible that there will become a world of people by the people for the people without God in the picture? That's a world that exactly what you're thinking, a world without God who demands and set the rules. See, brothers and sisters, this is nothing but a new Babylon, another empire without God. If I think about this, any rebellion will not really prosper. A world that excludes God will have its limits. And at the end of the day, God will prove to the world that he alone is in charge. Let me lead you to verse 4. It says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now this is interesting because from verses 1 up to 4, the word Amen, or sorry, the word Hallelujah was mentioned three times. And we know when the Bible says three times, it means superlative three times. But on the third, third time it was mentioned, it says, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, what is the word Hallelujah? The word Hallelujah is a Hebrew word which simply means praise God, Hallelujah. So when you say Hallelujah, praise God, it's, it's ridiculous because you're saying the same thing. You just say either Hallelujah or praise God. So it says, Amen, Hallelujah. But the word Hallelujah on the third time was mentioned with Amen. Now, what is Amen or Amen? It, it's not the, you know, the Tagalog show, raise the roof. It's not that amen, okay? This is a different kind of amen. Now, every time you create an online account, if you are, you know, subscribing to something, or if you are purchasing a gadget or a property, there's a, a very long user agreement that you scroll down. At the very bottom, there's a box that you will have to tick or you have to affix your signature. It's called user agreement, right? That box there that you would tick is like an amen. It works like an amen. It's like your agreement to all the things that's mentioned there. So the four living creatures and the 24 elders are saying, amen, hallelujah. Really, salvation, glory, and power belongs to God. It's like saying, I agree without a doubt, or I'm willing to put my life on the line. I agree without a doubt. That's amen. You see, it's easy to mention the greatness of God based on what he did. But it's also easy to blame God for what he failed to do. Think about it. When we worship God, when we ascribe him praises, most of the time we thank God for the things that he did, but not for the things or for who he is. What I'm saying is that worship or the fundamental basis of worship is a worship we owe God that is worship that is not based on what he did or what he did not do, but based on who he is. So when you love someone, or maybe you can ask your kids, why do you love? I always ask my, my daughter, why do you love Papa? She would always say, because you prepare food for me, you cook me pasta. You know, all those that, that I do for her. But it's not because I'm her father. I always tell her, I'm your dad. 
there's no one here. It's just the four of us here. When we praise God, when we thank Him, is it because of the things He did or because of who He is? Fundamentally of who He is. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you were awestruck in worship because God is eternal? I'm not talking about Thor, the God of Thunder. Or I'm not talking about the cast of the Eternals. I'm talking about the God who said, who is, who was, and is to come, eternal. I'm talking about the God of Moses, whom he met at the burning bush, who said, I am, eh, yeah, I am, eternal. I'm talking about Jesus Christ, who said, I am the resurrection and the life, eternal. When was the last time you worshiped God because he is eternal? See, all the gods, the Roman gods, were not eternal. Zeus was born. Jupiter was born. Minerva was born. All the Roman gods were born. They, they, they were not eternal. Only God is eternal. Praising God for blessing is good and right, but let's also praise Him and acknowledge Him for who He is apart from the benefits that we receive. See, saying amen in the strongest terms possible is worshiping God for who He is. And every time we say amen, we are acknowledging God is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient. Never change. Listen to me. Worship should not be based on the benefits alone. Because what if you take away the benefits? This is the whole story of Job. You probably heard about Job. It's a very long book. But this is the story of Job. What if God takes away all the benefits? Will he still worship God? That's the main question of the book of Job. And he did. Because he acknowledged, he said, Naked I came out to this world. Naked I will go out from this world. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Real worship happens when we worship God for who he is, not for what he gives. See, the Roman Caesars receive constant loyalty and allegiance because the citizens receive the benefits. And I get it. We love the benefits. We love blessings. Sometimes we go to church, we pray because of the benefits. I get that. We need it. But following Jesus for the sake of benefits does not make one a Christian. Judas followed Jesus only for the benefit. He will not die with Jesus. So at the very end, he saw that Jesus' career is going down. He betrayed Jesus. Christianity is not just about the benefits. So think about it. This is a question. Who in the right mind would not accept the offer of Pax Romana or the peace of Rome if it's about the benefits of being a citizen of Rome? In contrast... Who in the right mind would accept the gospel of Jesus Christ to follow him if all he asked is to follow him in a certain death? Now, only a guy who was truly transformed can choose to follow Jesus and accept that death sentence. Let me tell you this. Christianity in the first century is different from Christianity now. Right now, when you hear the gospel, when you hear about following Jesus, it's just, okay, let's have a moment, let's say our prayer, Accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, period, and I go home. But in the first century, to do that is to accept a certain possibility of death and persecution from the Roman Empire. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not my Lord. To say Jesus is God is to say Caesar is not God. It's always in contrast to the claims of Caesar. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is subversive. It's treasonous. Finally, in verses 6 to 8, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out again, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. God is said to be almighty, the most powerful of all. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Now watch this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. (laughs) Now this is interesting. What do you think in the world is that phrase, marriage of the Lamb, doing here? We know that Almighty reigns. We know that at the very end, God will reign, will bring back his, his kingdom here like on heaven and earth. But what is this marriage all about in chapter 19? Now, there's a very long explanation about this marriage here. But let me go back to history just very quickly. When the Israelites were brought out from Egypt, to the promised land, their first stop was Mount Sinai. You find that in Exodus chapter 19. On Mount Sinai, they understood that this event was a meeting with God. They met God in there. They were instructed first to wash their clothes, and after three days, they will meet with God. At the foot of the mountain, they were asked to stand at a certain location only and not to step some more forward. Why is that? because they will meet with God. And then Moses and the leaders of the people were asked to go up to receive the covenant. If you think in terms of a wedding day, this is like the exchange of vows. The covenant is the exchange of vows. God is telling them, I will bless you, and the people will say, we will follow you. It's the exchange of vows. Now, at the end of this ceremony, Moses took... uh, blood of of animals, lamb, and sprinkled on the people. This is like the exchange of rings. They were saying, if I break my covenant with you, let me die. God is saying the same thing. I will not break my covenant with you, but if I break my covenant with you, I'm going to perish as well. This is the exchange of rings. There's an image of marriage in Exodus chapter 19. It's very interesting. So that means when the Israelites, as a nation betrays God and look for another God, it's called adultery. Idolatry is adultery in the Old Testament. And in Babylon, they realized their mistakes because when they said, we will be faithful to God, and then there were a series of history that happened to the point that they sinned against God, they looked for other gods, and God decided to punish Israel. And so God sent the Babylonians to get the nation, uh, the nation of Israel, bring them to Babylon. They were sent as exiles in Babylon. And in Babylon, they realized their mistakes and they repented of their sins. Well, prophet Isaiah, during the exile, writes of this promise to God to bring back the people in the land. This image, again, is about marriage feast, salvation, restoration, even the death or the end of death comes into play here. Let me read to you Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is about the return of Yahweh to Zion. Now, this is a a complicated uh, topic, but the idea is that the nation of Israel 
has been idolatrous and therefore adulterous and therefore they were punished. But God said, I will restore you to your place by coming back to the land. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, God's presence left the land of Israel. Therefore, the land of Israel has been without God for a long time. The promise of Isaiah 25 is the return of Yahweh to the land of Jerusalem. Let me read for you chapter 25, verses 6 up to 9. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. I don't see any argument on veganism in here. <laughs> it's supposed to be a joke. It says, on this mountain, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord, every time you, you see that capitals, L-O-R-D, it's, it's the name of Yahweh. The sovereign Yahweh will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is Yahweh. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. All the concepts of salvation and restoration and marriage and feast come together in this passage. What this means is that the return of Yahweh is what constitutes the hopes of Israel until today. Talk to any Jew and they would say that they're all waiting for the Messiah. Because the Messiah is the embodiment of the return of God to Jerusalem or to Israel. Now, why do we have this concept? Let me give you the perspective. So when the Babylonians came, that empire who is ungodly came to Israel, it took away all the Israelites to exiles. And God promised in Jeremiah 29, your favorite verse, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. That's where it is. But... Only after 50 years, the first wave of the exiles were able to go back to the land. And they started building the temple once again because the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. But it was delayed for another 20 years. And the thing is that this new temple, we call it the second temple, are missing three things. Number one, it's missing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, the visible throne of God, or the physical throne of God. Secondly, it's missing the eternal flame. See, the first temple was inaugurated and the flame from heaven, the fire from heaven, consumed the offering. There's no eternal flame in the second temple. Thirdly, when the first temple was inaugurated, the presence of God was there. It was filled with cloud. See, the second temple misses three things. The throne of God, the flame of God, and the spirit of God. It's practically empty. It's a house, but it's empty. The innermost chamber is empty. So every Jew believe that soon Yahweh will come back to Zion through the Messiah, and the Messiah will establish God's kingdom once again. We're not talking about the one world government where it's run by a people, but it's run by God. And this and this coming of the kingdom of God will be characterized by a feast with cabernets and sinfandels and kebabs and shawarmas and manzaf. I'm going to have to say manzaf here. 
Nagsabdalis here. See, this feast is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, every time we talk about the Lamb, I think what you have in mind is biryani and shawarma. But when you think of the Lamb, you have to think about Passover. What happened in Exodus? So in Exodus, they were slaves in Egypt. You know the story? And the only way Pharaoh will release the people is if there's a, a very big disaster that will happen. So the angel of death came that night and took away all the firstborns of Egypt, killed the firstborns of Egypt, and spared all the firstborns of the Israelites. How did it happen? Because of the Passover lamb. God instructed Moses to make every family kill one lamb per family, per household. But on that night, every family is instructed to eat the lamb. It becomes the precursor to the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb is a reminder, excuse me, the lamb is a reminder of a celebration that at the very end, when Jesus comes back, it will not be a holocaust. It will be a celebration. It will be like a marriage. Look at Revelation 19 verse 8. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This marriage will be characterized by the church, this is the woman, that is clothed with fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. What is the righteous deeds of the saints? The righteous deeds of the saints are not the perfect attendance in church. It's not the faithfulness and giving of the monetary offering. The righteous deeds of the saints is how the church endured the persecution. It's how the church held on to their testimony on Jesus without compromise. That is the righteous deeds of the saints. So if we are to evaluate the present status of the church, would Jesus find the church dressed in pure white linen? Or would Jesus demand that we wash our clothes entirely? We, we talk about discipleship and Christianity and faith and holding on to the faith. What are, what are we really doing? Thanksgiving is coming. Christmas is coming. We have to, again, renew our commitment to God. That there must be only one God and only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. See, the world is trying to confuse us with who to follow. It's trying to confuse us what to believe. There's only one that is true, and that's Jesus Christ. We live in the world that is confusing. The only way we can do this is if we understand who we really are. And this is a bit tricky here. And let me tell you who we are. Apostle Paul wrote, two letters Apostle Peter rather wrote two letters first and second Peter both in in both letters Apostle Peter calls the Christians exiles we are exiles the world today calls this immigrant or better yet people in diaspora you might have heard about this one diaspora means scattered abroad all over the world now now we Filipinos are scattered all over the world right Everywhere you go, there, there are Filipinos. Here in America, we are immigrants, but we are in diaspora. You still go back to, your, to the home country when you retire. 
Christians do not belong to this world. We are called exiles in diaspora because our citizenship is not really here in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven according to the book of Hebrews. So make no mistake about it, our citizenship is not here. We are citizens of another kingdom. So that means every time you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, you are reciting a pledge of allegiance that there is only one God whose kingdom we belong. His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, every time we come to church to worship, we make it evident where our true loyalty lies. This is an act of subversion. My prayer is that in this coming holiday, both Thanksgiving and Christmas, it will remind us of what truly matters. Not the gifts, not the blessings, but the real reason why we have this. And reminds us of what truly matters and what we do while waiting for Jesus matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again because you are an awesome God and we worship you for who you are. You're the king of the universe. You're the creator of the whole world. By your word, everything was created and you have declared it all good. But we confess, Father, our sins. We have corrupted this world. But you are restoring this world through your kingdom, through, their, through this King, Jesus. Father, we pray that as we come under your leadership and under your rulership, I pray, Father, that you will allow us to experience how this kingdom will rule the earth, how Jesus will rule the world. Father, I pray that in our own little ways, in our own little worship, in our own little prayer time, I pray that your name will be glorified. And again and again, we will confess that salvation, glory, and power belongs to you only, God Almighty. And that we renounce all loyalties to this world. And we only give you our allegiance because really Jesus is the truest King of all. In Christ's name we pray.